Nice to meet you, finally. Great to talk with you. Absolutely. Yes. So nice to meet you, Stella. Oh, Darren, nice to meet you as well. I've heard wonderful things from, you know, Shag, so hopefully they're true. Since it's oh, my gosh. Him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can believe that. Yeah, can, I know. Can anyone well. trust what he says? <laughs> Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes. Nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Sawate. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 131 for January MMXVII. Happy New Year! Backworld Oracle is brought to you by Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. 
Batgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU with Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, my next guests were recommended by the Irredeemable Shag. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. You can either believe that they're worthy to be on the show or not. I believe they're worthy to be on, and I'm actually super excited to have them on. Please welcome, <laughs> <laughs> please welcome Darren and Ruth Sutherland to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I am glad to be here, happy to be part of this episode. Yeah, it's really great that you invited Estella. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can probably send your check and money to Shag. I think he gets some sort of royalties for telling me which guests to have on my show. Ah, oh, he's like an agent, right? So he's <laughs> he's representing us. Does he get ten percent? Is that it? <laughs> he's not worth a penny. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing him, it's way more than ten. But you know. Uh, so first, you know, the reason why I'm having you on, of course, is because I'm going to do a Green Arrow story. Barbara Gordon and Dinah Lance pop up. And I know a little bit about Green Arrow, but actually I don't really know much about this particular incarnation of the Green Arrow. And so I know I, I needed expertise. And as I said, your names came up. And I know this is old hat. I think this is what happens to us whenever we're invited on another show or asked to talk about our origin stories with the characters that we love. And so I'm going to once again ask you what your origin story is, but I'll start way, way back and ask what your comics overall comics origin story is how did you start into reading comics and then from there you can also say about your green arrow and i know that you're a big fan of mike rell origin story uh, very nice thank you stella i'll step in first while ruth uh, thinks hers through just a little bit more for me um comics for me started with both my mom and dad I would go to the grocery store with my mom every week, and that was back when comics were only available in grocery stores on the little spinner rack. So every week when I went to the grocery store with her, I was able to get one comic. So I would pick up titles then, and I was mostly a DC boy. I read Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Green Arrow, and then my really only Marvel title was Spider-Man that I read. And it was during that period of time that I guess I got introduced to Green Arrow because he would turn up in uh, backup stories that I would see. And also I would buy and read the Green Lantern, Green Arrow uh, series, which featured Green Arrow and later in its run featured Mike Grell. So that was my first introduction to Mike Grell. And certainly to go on with uh, Mike Grell and Green Arrow, I stayed a fan of Green Arrow and when Mike Grell launched the Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters, that was just perfect for us. It was a character I liked and an artist and writer I liked, a fabulous miniseries, and turned into a regular monthly series that we followed all the way through all 80 issues and all the various spinoffs that he did along the way. Just absolutely loved it. And my comics came from the grocery store as well when I was a kid. So my dad liked comics, and he would bring to me, I remember in particular, uh, Donald Duck, Woody Woodpecker, mm -hmm. Casper, uh, the Friendly Ghost, those kind of fun, you know, kid-friendly comics 
back in the day. And then thinking about Green Arrow, it was the longbow hunters that introduced me to that character. So I had the best ever possible introduction to that character because it was through Mike Grell's art and writing and just immediately fell in love with the character and have been a fan ever since of that character. And it ties in nicely because I've always been a Robin Hood fan. So kind of the archery, bow and arrow kind of stories and adventure always resonated with me. So the Green Arrow character was a great fit. I recently read The Longbow Hunters, and I I really enjoyed that. It was darker than I expected it to be. Uh, I think I remember people telling me that it was like a completely different take and sort of reimagining Green Arrow and Oliver Queen. And someone asked me to compare it. I I don't know if it's worth a comparison, but to compare it with The Killing Joke to a certain extent, especially with what happened to Dinah in in The Longbow Hunters and comparing that unfortunate scene with what happened to Barbara Gordon. And I wondered if you ever found like a comparison between those two or or if you had any thoughts on on sort of those scenes and, and... Unfortunately, the the violence that um, you know wonderful female characters go through in these two stories. It, it's a shame, I would say. Yeah, that you can't help but see some sort of comparison. I love the Longbow Hunters, but that part of the story is very difficult. I think that Mike Grell, you know, did that intentionally because he was wanting to be able to talk about their relationship and uh, the strains and stresses of it. So I think he had a purpose in doing it, but it's a really difficult scene and sequence. And it does compare, I think, to the horrible uh, sequence in The Killing Joke as well, which is equally difficult to get through. But they're certainly not the our favorite parts of either story, <laughs> but I guess necessary for what comes next. Well, we... Also, since we're on the back row of the Oracle show, uh, I do want to know about your Batman origin story. So how did you get into Batman, if you even read Batman? Chag always says everyone has a Batman period or stage. (laughs) Did you ever have it, and what was that? I'm definitely a Batman fan. So my earliest introduction and memories would be, you know, the fun, campy Batman television series, which was perfect for the age that I I found it. And have certainly admired so much like the detective aspect and the, you know, solving crimes, you know, solving mysteries. The cast of characters is amazing just in that world. Like there's so much. It's so, so rich and so many wonderful stories in the Batman world. And my introduction to both Batman and Batgirl would be the same thing. I mean, the TV, the 60s TV series was in reruns perpetually when I was a kid growing up. So I loved it. Uh, certainly got my introduction to the characters there, but I also read the comics. My dad bought me for Christmas and birthday. He would buy hardback collections, so he bought me the book Batman from the 30s to the 70s. So I got a nice, uh, well-rounded introduction to the Batman comics. I would buy them off the uh, newsstand from time to time. I always loved the character, considering him a favorite, and loved all the different variations in his character. Uh, honestly, I don't read Batman anymore because. In my personal opinion, he's been too dark for too long. Mm. I've gotten tired of that aspect of him. So uh, I don't follow him anymore, though I think of him as a longtime favorite character. And Ruth and I both love strong female characters, so Batgirl always resonates with us, too. Yes, she is great. Like I like seeing her out, out in the world fighting crime and, and being powerful. 
Absolutely. And I think the only reason why I can tolerate the, the dark tone of Batman is because of Batgirl. Because I think if Batgirl is done right, she's like this bright spot and the light to all of that darkness. And, and that's something that I've always clung to. And that's why I continue uh, to read her. Do you have a preference, uh, Barbara Gordon as Batgirl or Barbara Gordon as Oracle? Oh, I think Batgirl. That's what I will choose. They both have great aspects to their characters, but let me go with Batgirl t- today. Yeah. And I think I would, too. I, I love Barbara Gordon as Oracle, but she was Batgirl t- for so long mm-hmm. to me that I always think of her first as Batgirl. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to get a, a bit of both worlds because in the stories that you're going to lead us through, we'll have Oracle. And then, of course, uh, the back half of the show, we'll have her as Batgirl. So it'll be a nice little... Uh, Two worlds, I guess, that we'll be living in. Well, we're going to be talking three issues of uh, Green Arrow, issues 115 through 117. And it comes at a good time because I just did Final Night with Shag, and he actually just unveiled, I guess, one of the big things that happens is that uh, Oliver Queen comes back from the dead after Final Night, um, which I wondered if there would be repercussions uh, felt or ramifications or, you know, whatever, earthquakes, whatever that word is, uh, throughout uh, this story, but that doesn't really happen. But could you give a setup to, like, what is going on in Green Arrow at the time? Who is Green Arrow, maybe? Yeah, so the, it's interesting. We talked about how much we love Mike Grell's mm-hmm. Green Arrow. He left the series after issue 80, and we sort of trailed off on reading it. We would pick it up from time to time, but didn't read it regularly. But uh, the character that got introduced after Mike Grell left was Connor Hawk, and he came in as another archer. He became Oliver Queen's partner, uh, and then when Oliver Queen uh, learned that he was actually – uh, Connor Hawk was actually Oliver Queen's son. He had uh, been with a lady back in during his college days, and <laughs> he didn't know that she'd become pregnant and had this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> didn't know that she had had this uh, baby, and then so he shows up as an adult, and he just barely gets to know him before Oliver Queen dies off, and then Connor Hawk steps in as the new Green Arrow. Character-wise, how is Connor different from Oliver? That's a good question. I I never found him quite as three-dimensional. I mean, I know a lot of people make a bit of fun of Oliver Queen. He's uh, Some people think he's a Batman copycat. Some people think he's a bleeding-heart liberal. He's, I guess, a little bit of both of those, but more. I always felt he was a bit well-rounded. Connor Hawk, I don't know if he ever had enough of a chance to shine fully and get as fully developed. I, I always liked him fine, but I just never – fell in love with them, like uh, Oliver Queen as Green Arrow. What about you, Ruth? Let's say my um, general image of the Oliver Green Arrow is as more mature and at a different later point in his life than Connor. So I see Connor as a, you know, a little bit less mature, just at a different stage of life as far as life experience goes. Does Dinah know who Connor Hawk is? Oh, I don't remember. That's a great question, Stella. It's been a long time since I've read these, and I don't remember for sure at what point in time she knows. Hmm. I don't remember. Shadow knows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. Hmm. Just, yeah, just some questions that sort of popped up while I was reading, and they, they were interacting. Uh, another background question: Who is Eddie? Before we get into this story, 
Eddie Fires. He was actually a character that Mike Grell created and was first introduced in The Longbow Hunters that we mentioned earlier. And he was a CIA agent at one point, but quit the agency and has become more like a freelance, independent contractor out in the world on assignments. And he and Oliver were sort of begrudging allies. Mm -hmm. They were never quite on the same side because Eddie did things for money and Oliver didn't. So uh, they were begrudging allies. But after Oliver died, Eddie sort of became Connor's father figure. So their relationship is different than Eddie's and Oliver's, you would say? Very different, yes. Okay. Okay. Is there anything else you would uh, say to set up this story for anyone who's not read it before? Because I feel like a very new reader, so I'm going to be asking you lots of questions. So is there anything else that you would do to preface this story? Yeah, that's a really good point. So we've talked about Connor Hawk. We've talked about Eddie Fires. Uh, Shadow, of course, would be the other character that Mike Grell created again, introduced in The Lombo Hunters. She is a assassin for the Yakuza. She was forced into that role because her father worked for the Yakuza and he um, he did a disservice to them and uh, committed seppuku and she was forced into their service. So she is a very idealistic individual, but forced to do things she doesn't choose to do. And uh, she and Oliver have had a relationship, uh, and she has a child <laughs> as well that's uh, Oliver's child, <laughs> but who isn't in this story. <laughs> and she's an expert archer <laughs> with a beautiful dragon tattoo on her mm. arm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I get her and Roulette confused, just if only looking at, like, their dresses and then the tattoo, because Roulette also has a tattoo that, like, starts and, like, winds its way down her body. So sometimes I have to look to see who it is. Right. To know who's who. Right. Yes. <laughs> who's who? What a nice way to mention Shag without saying his name. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> you two have the floor, so you can take it away and uh, let us know what the Iron Death is all about. Very good. I'll start with Green Arrow number 115 from December 1996, The Iron Death Part 1, Discovering Japan, written by Chuck Dixon, pencils by Will Rosado. Inks, Robert Campanella. Colors, Lee Lowridge. Letters, John Costanza. And editor, Darren Vincenzo. The story opens with Connor Hawk and Eddie Fires on a five-hour layover in Osaka, and they've gone into town to absorb some Japanese culture. A group of seemingly drunk men stumble into them, but it's all just a ploy to capture Eddie. Connor immediately jumps into action. After taking down all of the others, Connor turns to the man with a knife to Eddie's throat, but when he approaches, it's Eddie who knocks Connor unconscious. We then get a flashback of Connor as a child, telling his mother that he wants to go to a Zen monastery to learn the way of the bow. Back in the present, a group of Japanese youth find Connor just as he's waking up. He thanks them, but says he needs to go quickly to find his friend. Jet, who's the leader of the group, tells Connor he'll be dead without their help, because the men who took Eddie are with the Octopus 9-9, the Korean Mafia. Jet takes Connor to join her tribe, the Mighty Aces. She tells him they will help him find Eddie. Eddie finds himself in a hangar at an abandoned airfield, surrounded by armed men. A former acquaintance of his by the name of Big Tuna is the local leader of the Octopus 9-9. Tuna wants Eddie to kill someone and shows him a photo and tells him the woman is arriving in Osaka the next day, and he wants her dead as soon as she arrives. Just then, Tuna and his men hear noises, and in the distance, they look outside of the hangar to see two motorcycles racing in their direction. 
A limousine drives away carrying several other men, while the other members of the gang race after the motorcycles. But the motorcycles are a distraction, while Connor and Jet sneak into the hangar, where they find a fully armed F-16 fighter with American markings. But they don't have time to investigate further when Tuna appears surrounded by several other heavily armed members of his gang. Meanwhile, at the Osaka airport, we see that it is Black Canary who has just arrived. As she walks to the bright red Lamborghini rental car waiting for her, she has a conversation with Oracle about her target via her headset. Looking at the rental car is Eddie Fires, and the issue ends with him holding up a gun with a silencer. Cliffhanger ending for that. <laughs> I will continue here with Green Arrow number 116. It was published January 1997, The Iron Death Part 2, A Gathering of Wolves. Writer Chuck Dixon, pencils Will Rosado, inks Robert Campanella and Dick Giordano. And the colors are by Lee Lowridge. Letters by John Costanza and editor Darren Vincino. So, the story picks up in the Osaka airport rental car lot. Eddie is still pointing a gun at Black Canary, but he's simultaneously telling her about the four men in limousine with guns pointed in their direction who will kill her if he doesn't. But he has a plan. Eddie quickly pivots, firing multiple shots and taking down two of the men while Black Canary rushes away. The two remaining men begin firing their guns while walking toward Eddie, but just then, Black Canary leaps in from above, taking out both of them with several well-placed kicks. While Oracle listens in, Eddie and Black Canary discuss their plans for Big Tuna and leave in the limo, which Eddie thinks will work better for the plan than the Lamborghini. Back at the abandoned airport hangar, Connor shoves Jet and tells her to run as he shoots multiple arrows. Big Tuna stops his guards from returning fire, telling them a stray bullet could strike one of the missiles of the fuel tank of the F-16 and blow them all up. Connor and Jet race outside just as her friends return on the motorcycles, and they all race away. Big Tuna sees the limo returning in the other direction and thinks it's his men returning after killing both Eddie and the Black Canary. But he realizes too late that the limo is driving in too fast. Big Tuna rushes out of the way just as Eddie and Black Canary leap from the limo right before it races through the hangar door and crashes into the F-16, creating a huge explosion. Seeing the explosion in the distance, Connor knows it means that Eddie is still alive. He asks Jet if she knows any other hideouts that Octopus 99 uses. He knows of one in Kobe, so they head that direction. It's night in Kobe at the home of Big Tuna. Guards constantly patrol the fortress-like home. Four arrows shoot from a tree into the side of the house, and then Shadow leaps from the tree, grabbing onto the arrows, using them as a ladder to climb up the wall. Riding in a bullet train, Connor thinks back to his training at the monastery, while Jet sleeps in the seat beside him. Meanwhile, Eddie and Black Canary have been driving all night, and they've arrived at Big Tuna's house. Inside, they find dead bodies everywhere, but no sign of Big Tuna. They've all been shot with white, feathered arrows. Eddie immediately knows it has to be Shadow. Just then, Eddie sees Shadow, who is injured and doesn't recognize him because she has lost so much blood and isn't thinking clearly. Shadow lets two white arrows fly in their direction, but before they hit their targets, two green arrows, fired by Connor, who has just arrived, strike Shadow's arrows, intercepting their course and leaving Eddie and Black Canary unharmed. Connor races to Shadow and she collapses in his arms, calling him Oliver. When Shadow wakes, Connor explains that he is Oliver's son and she tells him that she's come to kill Big Tuna because he is trying to destroy the alliance between the U.S. and Japan by detonating a nuclear bomb. The issue ends on board a cargo freighter. Big Tuna is talking by phone to his partners while a nuclear bomb is being uploaded on the deck below him. 
And I'll go on and cover the third and final part, The Green Arrow 117, February 1997, The Iron Death Part 3, The Death That Walks. Roger Chuckson, pencils Will Rosado, inks Dick Giordano, colors Lee Lowridge, letters John Costanza, editor Darren Vincenzo. The issue opens with dramatic views of a city being destroyed by a nuclear bomb. Buildings lay in ruin and bodies cover the streets. But it's all just part of a story. Accompanying the images is the voice of Big Tuna as he explains the new plan to a group of recruits from the Octopus 99. Now that the F-16 has been destroyed, they must take a new low-tech approach. A single man carrying a nuclear weapon small enough to fit in a backpack will walk up to the gates of a U.S. military base and detonate a bomb. This will lead the Japanese government to abandon their treaties with the U.S. and rearm an offensive military. Meanwhile, Shadow is firing arrows at a member of the mafia they were able to take captive. Each arrow gets progressively closer to striking the frightened man. Connor and Black Canary don't like this, but Eddie tells them they need to weigh his life against the lives of hundreds of thousands. The man finally breaks down and and details Big Tuna's plan and tells them he's aboard a cargo ship named the Kyoto Maru, but he doesn't know what the target is. Oracle tracks the ship and tells Black Canary it is docked at the port of Naha in Okinawa, where we see the lone member of the Octopus 99 beginning the walk to the U.S. military base. Traveling a helicopter with Eddie and Black Canary at the helm, Connor meditates and thinks back to his training at the monastery. Arriving at the Kyoto Maru, Connor, Black Canary, and Eddie drop in, ready for action, and quickly overtake the ship. Big Tuna stands alone with a gun aimed at them, but Connor points out that they've cut off his only escape route. If he doesn't help them stop the explosion, he will be killed in the blast as well. He gives them the information they need, and they rush by helicopter toward the military base. But they know they can't get too close to the base in an unauthorized aircraft. Black Canary gets them as close as she can, and Connor and Eddie drop to the ground and race toward the base on foot. The member of the Octopus 99 has just arrived at the gates to the base. An American soldier approaches him and tells him he will need to search his bag. As the soldier looks in the bag, he sees a display saying, Remote Detonator Armed. The soldier looks up to see the man holding a remote control. As he starts to push the button, a green arrow rips the device and his hand. As the story ends, Shadow gives Connor an envelope as he leaves. Connor opens it to find a photo of Oliver, alone in a jungle with a bow and arrow. The date on the photo indicates Oliver might still be alive, setting up the next story. And that's it. Yay! Thank you for the recap. <laughs> My first question for you is, do you feel like this story overall is a good representation of the series? I know you said you stopped reading consistently after Grell left, uh, but just overall, does this feel like a normal Green Arrow type of story to you? I think so. You know, a bit of adventure, uh, having to use the arrows strategically to, you know, dramatically intervene in whatever the situation is. Yeah, I think this is a typical Green Arrow type story. I mean, he often is involved uh, with uh, mafia and and that sort of thing. Uh, He often has adventures in Asia because of his connections to Shadow so it's a really good representation. We actually really enjoyed uh, rereading this one, revisiting it because of the ties to Japan and bringing in the shadow character. So I really liked it. I thought it was a good story. I almost felt as I was reading this that you could almost call it like a greatest hit story. I don't know if you would agree, but I mean, Shadow is in there, who I feel is like really big and and really entwined with the Green Arrow mythology. Uh, You have, of course, Dinah and, you know, Oracle there in the background, like all these people, these big hitters Mm -hmm. coming together. It just felt like it's a greatest hits right here for a Green Arrow story. 
Right. They're special guest stars. Yeah, I like that comparison. Yeah. And I certainly, yeah, I certainly agree. Shadow's a great character. And ever since Mike Grell introduced her, she really has stuck around. Other creators, writers, artists that have come along after him kept that character going. And they even brought her into the Arrow TV series. But um, something happened there. Mike Grell sort of, uh, I can tell that he knows the background on it. So he sort of hinted at us that, you know, something happened maybe behind the scenes that caused Shadow to be written out of the Arrow TV series, which I think is unfortunate. She could have had a, been a great character in that series as well. Yeah, after reading this, now I've seen more of a connection. I didn't realize that Oliver, because I guess it was last season or two seasons ago, you find out that that girl that he got pregnant, like she didn't lose a baby, you know, her, her his mom paid her off. And so she comes back and then the Connor right. thing. And so now it's like clicking into place like, oh, wait, here we go. So I'm glad I read this at, at least to like put uh, the Arrow TV series into better context for me. Yes, I love it when the show pulls from other angles and other parts of the history. Mm-hmm. Me too. I do have a question about the flashbacks with Connor. With the, and it seems like there are two different types of flashbacks. Uh, who is the monk that is uh, helping him out or teaching him, I should say? I wish I could tell you. I don't remember. I okay. found those parts okay. of the story very interesting, so, but I couldn't remember yeah. the details. Okay, okay. I liked how supportive his mom was, though, because it was just like you know a passion and an interest he had, and his mom was totally supportive. It's like, okay, if you want to go learn this, I will set you up with the best teacher and you know let you try it out. So I thought that was very supportive of her. And it's interesting that you get this backstory 115 issues in, and and I'm not sure when Connor first dropped onto the page, but you know. If you said 80 is when you kind of left, it could have been maybe like 30 or so issues. So it's, you know, it's taken a little while for his this backstory to pop up. And I think it comes at an interesting time, not only where he is, I think, emotionally and like maturity wise, but also location. You have shadow popping up. And then I think it all also leads into the big surprise that, you know, Oliver could be back. So the, I think... Chuck Dixon does a nice job of putting those little vignettes in between and, and showing how Connor grew up and, and was trained in everything. Right. I, th- I think these issues did a great job of having a nice variety, like the, not just the main story that we were following through, but like you were mentioning the different flashbacks and the atmosphere of it made it you know really well-rounded. And I know Ruth was really excited with the very end because – the next story has the word dragon in the title. <laughs> I know. And it looks like he's there's a dead dragon on the ground is what it looked like or a dinosaur. So either way, I want to see what happens next. So I have to get that issue out and read it. There you go. Are you a fan of dragons? Oh, I am. Dragons, dinosaurs, you know, fantasy, mythology kinds of things. Lots of fun for me. Okay.
think this story could have worked without Dinah and Babs? You know, I guess it could. It, it wouldn't have been as much fun because I always mm-hmm. liked Black Canary. I always liked Oracle. So to me, if they weren't in there, the story would have probably still worked, but it, it would have been a loss in comparison, that's for sure. And especially it's nice to see Black Canary coming back because of her long association with Oliver as Green Arrow. Right. So I think they added a lot to the story, even though they had small parts. I know Ruth was picking up on lots of little things and liking how uh, they kept showing how Oracle was tired and and always had a drink of coffee and oh, she was spilling it yeah, because of the time, time zone. zone. Yeah. Right. Big difference in time zones there. And she was having to be <laughs> you know alert and helping and <laughs> and being on target with it all. So I'm very happy they're in there. I wouldn't ever want it without them. And I think it works well because Dinah has a connection, just like you said, with... Well, I don't know how much of a connection she has with Eddie, but you said that he popped up in Longbow Hunter, so I'm sure there is some sort of relationship there. And even Oracle, I like how she says, come on, you know, talk about bad company. We're talking about Eddie Fryers here. Right. If he's around, you know there's going to be trouble. <laughs> yes. And then Dinah and Ollie, so I think it comes at a good time. I think perhaps it was all in Dixon's mind just to be like... The end page is that there's a revelation that Oliver could be alive. So who is most impacted by this, potentially? Oracle does a little bit of her oracling, not as much. I feel like her job doesn't really come into play until the very end when she has to like find information and find where that where the ship is going to go. But uh, it's because Dixon's writing this, and of course, Birds of Prey, I think it, he's got the tone down, obviously, and he's got their good conversations going back and forth. And I always find it amusing when Dinah is, quote-unquote, talking to herself, and she has to explain <laughs> to people uh-huh. because she's she's talking to Oracle, but she doesn't want anyone to know what's happening. And uh, so that those are always fun scenes for me. Right. It's nice to see how she tries to cover that up. Yes. It was, like you said, it was a key bit of information that Oracle provided. So, again, like you said, you know, could the story work without them? I think there's a perfect example of how the story wouldn't have worked without Oracle and Black Canary. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the art a little bit. What What did you think about the art? Of course, this is like my first story here, these first three issues. So uh, it took a little bit of getting used to for me. I felt like the lines were heavier, which is more of an inking thing. Uh, and the people were, this is hard for me to explain, but I felt like people were made more of shapes than details. It was just a different art style <laughs> than I'm used to. Is this, were you, you two used to this? Uh, what did you think about the art? I thought it was solid. You know, I thought it was um, you know, clean and clear for the most part. I know what you mean mm-hmm. about how the inking was, so that was heavier than, than we would be used to. I know Ruth commented about how dark these issues are. They're all uh, sort of dark, so it's nice when there's the occasional pop of color or a bright scene mm-hmm. now and then to uh, give it a little bit more variety. Uh, I, I didn't particularly like the way Connor looked. I think he was the one that I didn't think looked quite right most of the time. But some of the other characters I thought looked pretty good, and I thought the backgrounds and scenery were really well done. Dick Giordano's, I think, involved in all of these as as the inker maybe on two of them and the penciler and inker on one of them. So he certainly had a long history with Green Arrow, and uh, that might be, a, again, an example, though, of why the inking's a little heavy because he was involved, but it's nice. I like the atmosphere. So you know, some of the scenes were set when it was rainy. Others when it was dark at night, so some of the different atmosphere I appreciated, as well as kind of the camera angles. There were several kind of overhead shots or, you know, different kinds of perspectives that I know take a lot of effort to get right. So I really appreciated those. 
yeah, added some nice variety uh, that way. Oh, and the scene where Shadow is climbing up the outside of the wall of the house using her arrows as Mm -hmm. uh, ladder steps. I like the angle on that. That was effective. And Ruth loves silhouettes. So that's right. (laughs) There was a silhouette of Shadow. How Mm. appropriate that, you know, a character with that name, her own dark silhouette. So that was lovely. Shadow got a silhouette. Yes. I also feel like the artists, and perhaps it's because they've had, like you said, many adventures over in Asia, really got, I think, the culture down and the environment for being over in Japan. Because I think sometimes you're told like they're in Japan, but the art doesn't really reflect the culture and what it would actually be like in Japan. But I felt like I'm actually in Japan right now reading these three issues. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Stella. I think Mike Grell set the tone for that because he... It's very important to Helm to depict races and cultures mm-hmm. correctly. He That's something that he talks about if you hear him talk or read interviews. It's really important to him. And so I think he set that tone very early on in his Green Arrow, making Japan an integral part and Shadow an integral part. And that, I think, had continued, and that's really great. I'll, I'll even throw in something that – We've been interacting with Mike Grell on just recently. He actually has done the cover art for a song from MC Brainpower called All the Same. Yes, that's it. And it's a fantastic song about how we're really all the same underneath. And the the musician met Mike Grell at a comic convention in Europe, and uh, they got to know each other there. And... Uh, Brainpower loved Mike Grell's art, so he actually got Mike Grell to do the cover art, and it's nine squares uh, uh, together on a square, sort of like if you think of Hollywood squares or something like that. You've got a nine-grid square, and it's the same face portrayed in nine different races, and then that's what the song's about, and Mike Grell drew all nine of those faces so that you can see the faces the same even though it's at the same time different because it's made up of all of these different races in each of the nine pictures. I did wonder about Connor, why he was colored so darkly. And I was like, is this kid tan? Is he what? I couldn't tell, but I did research. And so is he Native American? Because his mother, it sounded like his mother may have been Native American. Oh, yeah, you're right. His name was like Moon Shadow or something. Yeah, something like that. I've forgotten that. That's a good thing to bring up. Stella, because I remember, yeah, she has like a Native American name as well. I only noticed because the coloring on him annoyed me because I'm like, why is this guy tanner than everybody else? Uh, you know, if he's white, but then I I wanted to like, you know, decide right or find out right away whether he was actually Caucasian or not. So now I'm okay with it. I can look at it. It's fine. So, <laughs> ah. But he's got that bright hair, too. I know. Very blonde hair, which, yeah, I guess genetics. (laughs) That's That's how it goes. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Do you know how Oliver's resurrection impacts Connor and his role as Green Arrow? It's been too long for me to remember the the interplay there. Isn't there? I'm trying to remember. See, this is – I should have done more research. I I guess we thought we remembered more than we did. Because Isn't there um, one of the reboots just shortly after – and I think they just didn't bring his character back. Mm. Uh, but I'm trying to remember oh. what it's like when Oliver does come back into play here. But I'm trying to remember which one of the big crossovers comes right after that. And I, I think from following that reboot, Connor's not reintroduced into continuity. 
I'm sure someone will write in and correct us yeah, because absolutely. they'll remember better than us. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's a bummer. I I hate when that happens. Like, let's just get rid of a character when clearly, like, he has a worthwhile place in canon, so he he deserves to be there. He had a long run in the series. That's uh, for sure. Uh, at the same time, I don't know how fondly he's remembered. I, I remember him fondly, but I wouldn't ever trade him for Oliver. Mm, yeah. But uh, it is interesting. Uh, he's not really remembered much now. Of course, he has popped up. I think he he's popped up in the Arrow TV series, at least you know in uh, one of the alternate storylines. So maybe they'll bring him back. We haven't seen him in the new 52 or Rebirth, though. Mm. Are you reading the current Green Arrow title? Yes. Absolutely. I really love the Rebirth Green Arrow. The new 52 Green Arrow, I'm, you know, I love the character. I wanted to love that book. I struggled. I, mm. I didn't make it all the way through. <laughs> but Rebirth has been a breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> uh, Rebirth's been a breath of fresh air. I think they've gotten a lot of things right. I in the uh, Rebirth, Shadow now doesn't have a relationship with Oliver. They've established her as older, and she had a relationship in the past with Oliver's father. Mm-hmm. So I'm not – I don't know if I love that change, but everything else about it is fantastic. And it's really exciting because Mike Grell just announced less than a month ago that he's going to be returning and doing 12 covers – 12 alternate covers for the new Green Arrow series. So that's fantastic. And this is the 30th anniversary of his Longbow Hunters run. So it's a perfect time to bring him back on the book. I'm ex- I'm so excited about that. I can't wait to see the covers. Definitely going to buy those and see if I can get some autograph next time we get a chance to see him. Did you faint when uh, – I, I think I was like attached to the same Twitter blast that went out that, you know, my girl was returning as you were for whatever reason. But did you what, – what was your excitement level when, uh, when that news was revealed? Oh, we were thrilled. He actually shot us an email oh. uh, just to give us a heads up that he was going to do the press release. Mm. And, you know, we were just so excited that he shared that news with us in advance and really wanted to get, help get the word out about it. Yeah, it's really nice. We The three creators that we do podcasts about, we've become friends with all three of them, and they're all three such wonderful gentlemen. And um, so they give us little tidbits. So, yeah, Mike Grell had actually reached out to us and let us know before the press release even went out so we could help with the promotion when it happened. Yeah, we were so excited, so happy for him. That's great. I think one of my favorite parts about Rebirth was that they brought Dinah and Ollie together. And I think... You know, there are a few couples, in my mind, that really deserve to be together. And I think that was one of those travesties of the New 52 is that they weren't together. They didn't really know each other at all, at least, you know, from what I know of Dinah's reading. Uh, And so to learn that they were together and now, like, really, you know, his story is also her story as they move on. Because I've been reading this rebirth, I've been really happy about that. Yes, I root for them as a couple. I do think those two characters go together and make such sense. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the Arrow TV series will fix that. Oh, I don't know. There's... I don't know how. <laughs> oh, that was – I know people really – I like Felicity, but I totally was – I was astounded when they killed off Laurel at the end. <laughs> I thought Felicity was going to get it for sure. And now, of course, the second half of this season, we have another Laurel, but who knows? who or what she really is right they keep us in suspense like what's the next relationship going to be (laughs) yes well that's the cw for you i guess yes
That's yeah. That's superheroes on on the CW world. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, winding down this particular story, what are your overall thoughts? And uh, in your wrap up, you can also give it uh, a grade out of ten. Shadow tattoos. Mm. (laughs) I'll throw in my one biggest gripe with the uh, three issue series, which is um, Big Tuna and the Octopus Nine Nine did not need. To kidnap Eddie Fires at all, <laughs> they all yeah. they got no information from. <laughs> they got no information from him. They already knew when Black Canary was arriving, where she was arriving, mm-hmm. where she was going to be. He could have just sent his own men there. She would have had no warning, and they could have killed her. So, thankfully, lucky for us, they right. chose to involve him. But it was it was that part of the plot that I have no idea why other than it was needed to make the story move forward. Mm-hmm. But other than that obvious flaw, I actually quite enjoyed this three issue story. What would you rate it, Ruth? I'll, I'll let you rate it on a scale of one to 10. I'll say eight. So eight, eight. dragon tattoos, eight <laughs> dragon tattoos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have given it, I would have given it seven, but so we're, we're really close, close there. We're close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a fun adventure. So I did, I think, Definitely a strength is the mix of characters there, uh, the characters working together. I think the um, international setting for me is always a plus. I thought it was well done. Yeah, me too. My issue with it, uh, well, first of all, I'll say that it's not new reader friendly <laughs> because I jumped on. I think to a certain yeah. as as long as you know who I knew Connor Hawk. I didn't know like details of him. Of course, you have Donna, but you know Eddie. I, I wasn't sure of him, so it's hard to be in, you know just jump on in here. So that's that's tough. But that's you know my fault, not the not the book's fault. I did feel like it was a bit of a slow burn, and I think that goes with what you were saying, Darren, about, you know, Eddie didn't need to be captured. There there seemed to be some, like, filler in there before we get to the last issue where, like, everything really does come together. But I liked that, um, like I said, I felt like it was the greatest hits because once Shadow dropped in, I mean, it's like bringing in Lady Shiva. And I know some people complain about overuse of characters, but once Shadow popped in, I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be super exciting, which was great. And and I think uh, obviously having Dinah, who has a relationship, so it's not just a random character, like, let's have this character in there. It's someone that has some sort of connection to the Green Arrow mythos and then Oracle in the background, I think it turned out to be um, a fun story. So I think I might split the difference (laughs) between you two, and I'll go with uh, a 7.5 out of 10 shadow Okay. (laughs) I I like that. And I have to say one thing, since we were talking about the irredeemable shag earlier, (laughs) he he occasionally throws out there, and he thinks we don't listen to his show, (laughs) that um, he thinks shadow's overused from time to time. So every time he does that, I threaten to take out a contract with her on him. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... There are some, like when the New 52 began, so I'm on the Batman Universe podcast as well, Penguin was popping up everywhere, and it was literally in every book that he had his own little miniseries as well, and that got a little obnoxious, but I think that was because it was all at one time, and... I mean, you guys can tell me, but I feel like with Lady Shiva, at least, and perhaps with Shadow, I feel like she might pop up a lot, but it's not like a lot of Shadow in many books all at the same time. Mm. Right. No. That's, yeah, that's not the case. Yeah. And she's a cool character, so why not use her if you have her? That's what I think, too. The character design, just visually, she's beautiful. Love her, you know, longbow and her style. 
just visually very appealing and then a very interesting character with, you know, a long history and complicated, you know, background that she has. Mm -hmm. She is an amazing looking character. We got a commission of her by Mike Grell at a convention once. And it was, it was so sweet to know that he can like his own work so much because, you know, it was at a convention and he had done this drawing for us and he, he gave it to us and he was staring at it as he gave it to us. And he said, would you two please scan this and email it to me? I really want to keep a copy of this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we move on to our new books, I have a really important question for you two. And this is something that I've been asking all of my co-hosts. And it's, uh, well, do, do you first of all know who Donovan Morgan Grant is? Uh, darn, I should have looked him up because I hear him mentioned on your show <laughs> whether or not your team Don. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm going to ask you. Are you two, and it can't be a married couple decision, I think. Well, I guess it could be. You can confer and tell me. But are you team Shag or team Don? Well, now you're going to have to tell us because I, I didn't research. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> We've met Shag. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, Don has been uh, – he's a good friend of mine. He comes on – at least on my anniversary, we always do also a Valentine's Day special, a shipper special. Um, he enjoys uh, anime and, and Batman, and uh, he's been doing a culturally relevant uh, podcast about hard questions um, and not having answers to them. But it's basically, you know, he was getting fed up with the fact that I've had Shag on, you know, a great deal. And uh, it's basically, you know, if you had to decide uh, yeah. between, <laughs> if <laughs> if you had to decide between the two of them, you know, which one would you rather have as a semi-permanent uh, co-host on this show? So you, you, if you want to think of it this way, it's you could say, are, are you Team Shag or Team Not Shag? If you want to go that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you gave us the background because uh, we've listened to a lot of your episodes, but not sadly all of them. Uh, there's all, never enough hours in the Please, day. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because I've heard you mention him about your <laughs> – I've heard you mention about uh, like your uh, sadly broken up engagement and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. So I always get a good laugh and sort of know what's going on. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I think just to rile Shag <gasps> to see if he's listening. Mm-hmm. I'll say Team Donovan. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do that. Shag probably doesn't listen, so so we, we can get away with this. <laughs> but now I'll have to go check out his stuff. Sounds like some interesting topics he focuses on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I could definitely uh, send you some links when we get off of here. So, Next up is listener emails. Mail time. Here's the mail, it never fails It makes me want to wag my tail When it comes, I want to wail I actually have quite a few listener emails and comments Mainly because I've had these specials and I've had guests on So I've not really allotted a time slot for feedback and everything. So now I'm going to basically uh, double back and review everything. So if I haven't read your email or questions, I haven't forgot about you. So I'll start with the site first. 
And all these comments are coming from episode 128, where Shag Matthews uh, guest starred and we talked about Final Night. So first up from Michael Ridge, Salway Stella, I just listened to this episode while I was waiting for the dogs at the groomer. It struck me that Finise could be a description instead of a name, someone who metaphorically rose from the ashes like a phoenix. Helena's origin story says that she saw only two bodies in the attack, her father and her brother. The attackers took her mother, the never-seen Maria, out of the room before she was supposedly shot. If Maria has returned, she would be a finesse. So that's a likely proposition. I can't really say anymore because it's actually revealed uh, in this episode. But that is an absolute uh, a great idea. And plus, we never saw her face. So you kind of question why is that? Ian Miller, uh, as I call him, Ian Prime, responds to that and says, Agreed. Maria is almost certainly Finise. Now, solicitations say that Oracle is sticking with the team, so hopefully it's not a full-fledged villain, though their work with the mob seems ambiguous, to say the least. Indeed, Ian, and I'm going to get to that in this episode. And then Ian Prime, a.k.a. Ian Miller, uh, has another comment. He says, I really enjoyed all the topics you covered with Shag. Final Night is a strange comic, since I've only read the Robin issue because of Steph. Interestingly, I just bought a hard copy of that issue two months ago, and surprisingly, it was in glossy paper and said the standard newsprint of the day. As someone who's done a lot of collecting of older comics for Babs, have you noticed any other events getting glossy paper instead of newsprint? Additionally, it sounds like you read most of your current comics digitally, but are there some you get hard copies of regularly? Uh, so first of all, with the glossy paper, I feel like... The majority of things I get are glossy paper, but when I was trying to collect the Teen Titans, uh, why, how do I get an intention to collect the Jeff Johns run of the Teen Titans? And I remember getting the first trade and really loving it. That's that newsprint paper, and I, I think they're like re publishing them like they're putting them out again and I or reissuing them whatever and I wonder if those are on the glossy paper and I just got uh, Peter David's first volume of Supergirl and that's on glossy paper and I just wonder if maybe we're we are getting back into that now maybe it was like a cheaper kind of thing with the newsprint I'm not really sure uh it certainly I feel like it has uh, a different experience when reading those I don't know if I could like separate you know like how would I feel how do I feel when I'm reading the newsprint feel versus glossy but honestly I think you know comics is such like a sensual experience because you're you know you're using uh, more of your senses I think than perhaps you would with just reading a regular book so I think like touching is also one of those senses so I feel like maybe the newsprint makes you feel as if you're reading those single issues and whereas the, the glossy paper is, is, I don't know, something special and you can, can tell that it's distinct and different from the single issues. But that could just be me. Uh, as for your other question, which uh, is talking about the, the hard copies, I do actually get hard copy comics. The ones that I get regularly are Batgirl and Birds of Prey, of course, and uh, Gotham Academy, Ms. Marvel, and then uh, Captain Marvel, whatever form that is. Currently, it's it's Mighty Captain Marvel. And I really like Moon Knight. And then uh, Paper Girls, which is an image. Uh, Motor Crush, I just started getting because that's by the former team 
Batgirl, which is actually really good. Issue number one, I just read it, is really good. And I tried Hulk on a lark because I like She-Hulk. And um, that was the first issue was good, so hopefully it'll keep it up. Uh, so that's really the majority of things that I get hard copy. Uh, the digital ones are just mainly, they're sort of the ones that I tried them. And because I do a mail order system, if you try issue number one, you can't cancel until like issue number three. So you're like really, you're, you're trying to own. But I like to try, I sort of like to rent, I guess I could say, uh, with the digital. So if I wanted to say, for example, like Doctor Strange, I decided to try that because uh, Jason Aaron was writing in. I really like Jason Aaron. And so, but I don't really read Doctor Strange. So I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I actually really liked it, so I'm continuing reading it. But other things like the Ultimates, you know, they were going to renumber it. New Writer was going to be on and everything. I was like, I'm going to stop that. So it's just easier to stop with some of the digital ones. But the ones that I feel like I would like to collect and have and I really, really like, which Spider Woman's up there, so I don't know why I get that digitally. I should get it uh, in paper. But uh, those are the ones that I get in hard copies. So hopefully that answers your question. Uh, so thanks for writing in both Ian and Michael, and thank you for your continued listening. So now over to the listener emails. Uh, first up, we have from Jeanette Chung. Jeanette says, Hi, Stella. After the ratchet and terrible stint Barbara Gordon played in the Killing Joke movie, you are probably yearning for some positive bad screen time, as I am. I wonder, is the new Lego Batman movie on your radar? Apparently in this film, which will be released next February, Babs will be the police commissioner. She will make a task force that unites forces with Batman to bring down crime in Gotham. I am not incredibly well-versed in Barbara's history, so I was wondering, will this be her first iteration where she is either a commissioner or on the police force in general? I know a repeated trope in the comics is that her father doesn't want her to be a police officer because it is dangerous, and that is partially why she dons a cowl. I'm also very excited because Barbara will be voiced by Rosario Dawson. What are your thoughts on this upcoming version of Babs? Hope you are doing very well and that the fall season is treating you well. <laughs> also, I am floored that you are releasing a new podcast with the excellent Pan Pan. I will have to read of Mice and Men and then give your first episode a listen. Loving your podcast is my favorite thing to listen to while I practice at the Martial Arts Center. Keep up the good work. Fondly, Jeanette. Well, Jeanette, this is actually, to answer your first question, it's not the first time we've seen Barbara take on a role on the police force, and especially as commissioner in Batman Beyond, which is later on in Batman continuity, Bruce is about... He's pretty old. He's like 80. I don't know if they ever nailed down a time. And then you have uh, Terry McGinnis taking up the suit. In that continuity, Barbara Gordon is commissioner without a wheelchair. So this is not the first time, but this uh, could be fun with the, the Lego Batman film. I'm, I've am i not been – I think I watched like maybe the first teaser where he's walking around in his little bathrobe. But I've not really seen anything other than that. I, I can't really give you a reason why I'm not, uh, but I am going to see it. I'm excited for a Barbara Gordon character in, you know, any film. And uh, especially, though, you know, at a deeper level, I'm I'm hopeful that because this is Lego Batman that she'll be treated rightly. And I am hopeful that there's no, like, shipping between her and Batman because that would set my teeth on edge, as you would know. I'm planning on doing, like, a review of, of that movie when it comes out, so I'm looking forward to it. 
And of course, Rosario Dawson is just amazing. So uh, that's great. And I think she plays Wonder Woman in some of the direct-to-video DC films. So it's not like um, – I, I think she adds uh, certainly an exotic aspect uh, to any role that she plays. Um, and she's just so well-versed. I think it'll be great. I think that answers your question. So thank you, Jeanette. Next up from uh, everyone's favorite Pan Pan, Tom Panarese, he says, Stella, I really enjoyed listening to you and Shag talk about Final Night. I had the opportunity to cover the series on an episode of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality and had many of the same thoughts that checked it. To me, the crossover was a disaster movie with superheroes and it hit a lot of notes that the crossover prior to it couldn't because they were too focused on a supervillain, alien invasion, or some sort of gimmick as a MacGuffin. Not that all those crossovers were bad, although the less said about bloodlines, the better. Final Night gave our heroes a chance to face a situation that seems hopeless and test their will and senses of hope and humanity. I had almost all the crossovers and loved collecting this in the summer of 96. In fact, I think that until Infinite Crisis, it was the last major crossover I collected. So, in short, great episode. Two corrections, though. First, I'm pretty sure that the episode where we talked about Betty Kane was an episode of Taking Flight. Ruh-ro. <laughs> Second, I don't want your listeners to actually think that you came up with the nickname Pan Pan. That goes all the way back to when I was a sophomore in high school. So can it, Seuss? Anyway, looking forward to the next episode. You know, Tom, what happens in high school stays in high school. And we're in sort of a different continuity. So in our continuity... I'm the one who came up with your current nickname, Pan Pan. So there you go. And finally, from Brian, he says, Hi, Stella. I recently discovered the Batgirl the Oracle podcast through the Fire and Water Network and have been slowly making my way through your back catalog of episodes. I'm currently up to episode 25. Despite my obsessive compulsive tendencies, I had to skip ahead to episode 130 because I have a seven-year-old daughter who is a big fan of DC superhero girls. She has read and reread the graphic novel, Finals Crisis, and has a few of the figures, including a 12-inch Batgirl. We also watched the webisodes together, which she finds incredibly humorous and entertaining. I enjoy looking for the Easter eggs as well as seeing how characters from the mainstream DCU are adapted for this series. I especially appreciate the positive tone of Superhero Girls, on which you and your guests commented, because my daughter is particularly sensitive to media portrayals of violence. That makes this series a rare opportunity for me to share one of my geeky interests with her. One concern I have about DC Superhero Girls is how some traditional villains have been recast as heroes. My daughter's favorite character from the series is Poison Ivy, her superhero girl BFF, according to the online quiz. And I wonder how she'll react when she, God willing, transitions to reading mainstream DC comics and sees that Ivy isn't exactly the quiet, sensitive, nature-loving hero with whom she's come to identify. I can imagine how I would have felt if, after falling in love with Aquaman on the Super Friends card cartoon show, I started reading comic books only to discover that he was actually an evil villain. This decision by DC could lead to disappointment for some young fans down the road. Then again, I might just be playing the overly concerned parent. I would be interested to hear any thoughts you might have on the matter. Thank you for putting together this episode and for all the effort you put into this podcast. Well, Brian, thank you for listening. Uh, I appreciate your diligence and patience in listening, uh, especially to the initial episodes, and I forgive you for hopping ahead to episode 130. I can certainly understand your concern with recasting the villains, uh, but at least, you know, they did keep some like Giganta. But I personally also appreciate seeing a Harley Quinn whose past hasn't been marred by the Joker. Like she hasn't 
met him. Who knows if he's actually in that universe? I'm sure he is somewhere. And you can also tell your daughter that Ivy's a personal favorite of mine as well, but I haven't taken the superhero uh, BFF quiz yet. I think I'd probably be brokenhearted if it turned out to not be Babs. So maybe I'm scared to do it, but I should do it sometime. I'm hoping that you know, with this series, I guess with the movie, you've got the digital video series. You have the OGNs that Shay Fontana has been writing, The Finals Crisis. I think a new one just came out, as well as the digital first that have just started coming out. More younger, audi- well, younger audiences are going to be able to attach themselves to the characters. And hopefully when they grow older, they can then transition to the mainstream versions I see the issue you present regarding a change in the characters, but I'm hoping that, you know, knowing this is a different continuity slash Earth, that perhaps as they move on, they can just realize that, oh, you know, this is a different, lighter version, and this is the original version that I'm I'm currently reading. And, you know, hopefully Ivy, while she may not be as quiet as, she, you know, in real life or in the, you know, Earth 1 or wherever we are on currently in D.C., you know, she still has that love for plants. Uh, perhaps she gets a little bit darker than that. But but I think, you know, their overall, like, whatever you would describe one of the villains as is certainly, I think, equates to what, how they are in the real world. You know, Harley is just like this goofball, crazy person. And that's how, you know, that's DC Universe as well as the Superhero Girls Universe. So I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm hopeful that it'll be a nice transition, or at least you'll be able to decide that, hey, these are two different things, which is kind of like what you have to do now as a comics fan anyways with certain, like with the films that are coming out, the Gotham TV show, which is clearly not, you know, in comics uh, content. Continuity, but I mean, I can only hope that this will be a, a great way to get um, more people on board and especially um, young girls and, you know, who become teenagers, who become come young women and, and continue to be comic fans. So thank you for writing in, Brian, and thank you to everybody who wrote in. Again, you can always write me at backgirltheoracle at gmail.com or you can post directly on the the page that the episode posts. Okay, well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 5 and Batgirl 58 slash 6. I call it 58. It's really 6. And now Zias' Radio Hour featuring All the Same by MC Brainpower. What if it's just all in Put a ball and chain around you. Judge not like Bob Marley back in the day. No masquerade, I'd rather be myself if that's okay. Music's my calling, yet many times it made me nervous. But I keep telling my purpose, I'm right here at its service. So let it flow and go, I know just when to bend and write it. Pay attention to my inner tune and fork when I'm excited. Look deep inside, I leave prejudice on the shelf. How can you speak on someone else if you don't even know yourself? The essence is to be you, be true and feel accepted. Everyone needs love, nobody wants to be rejected. It's the same for any human being We need to be seeing eye to eye Focus on a deeper healing And locking that feeling
a ball and chain. What if it's all in vain? The fight, the game, the loss, the pain, the hate, the love, the cost, the fame. This is cause and effect. Like a ball in a bat. All I do is follow in my heart in the art of rap. And when I'm doing what I want, put it all on the track. I am like seas fire. Please, people are dying. Bombs flying. Fathers crying. Leaders are lying. We gotta keep the faith. Problems are never ending. When your truth will be depending on your own misunderstanding. Shine your light and never hide. It's your life, so you decide. The vibe is right. Let's provide. Highlight we're all alike. And while the world is working overtime to divide, it's more natural to unite. Cause ain't we all the same inside? But if this is more have the answers, but I do want to say, at the end of the day, everyone wants to be loved, nobody wants to feel rejected, so the next time you disagree with someone, try to look for your similarities instead of your differences, focus on building bridges, cause no matter what we believe, we're all the same underneath, Well, welcome back. We're going to dive into background the birds of prey first. So this is issue number five. Who is Oracle into the light? And this is the big reveal issue. So we're, we're going to have some big discussions here. Writers Joey Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Alan Pasalacqua. The birds continue to check out the foracles lair when he arrives, or whoever he is. And it turns out that he is a glorified hacker-turned-fanboy, literally, and his name is Gus Yale. We continue seeing all the memorabilia. He explains some of the sketchy things he has been doing. And he even gives his theory that Batman is really six men. And Batgirl tells him that he's correct, because, of course, that's the safe answer. Gus is really annoying both Huntress and Black Canary, uh-huh. but Batgirl really wants some answers. Basically, anytime the birds were in danger, he had it all planned out and knew that they'd be okay. Uh, but that really only works if everything goes to plan, and if I remember correctly, I think a cop died back in the safe house, so I guess we're neglecting that. We then take a trip down memory lane as Gus talks about his hacker past, his interactions with Oracle. He helped her with some coded Russian files and her disappearance. Many people had many ideas of what happened to Oracle, and he waited for an Oracle that just never returned and then decided to find the site and therefore information that she was using and put out feelers for buyers. After moving on up and becoming this new Oracle, he decided to find out who Oracle really was. He put the pieces together and decided that it was Barbara Gordon. This narrative is interrupted by (laughs) Finice's movements, and Gus wants to help out. Batgirl takes a moment to find her identity in the bathroom. She comes back, and against the wishes of the others, she stays to be the handler and tech 
guru, while Huntress and Black Canary go out in the field. So very much a classic Birds of Prey feel. They set a trap for Finis, while Batgirl decides Gus is good people because he gives the money he gets from the mob to charity. So I guess that's what a good person does. Finise <laughs> uh, and Santo arrive where Black Canary and Huntress are. But Huntress can't take the shot because it's finally revealed that Finise is, in fact, her long-lost and not-dead mother. Next up is Family Reunion. <laughs> so the big white elephant in this room right now is the revelation <laughs> of who Gus is as Oracle. Um, so I'm going to go with you guys first because I sort of have many things to get off my chest. So how do you feel about this particular character being Oracle, this revelation, and also all of the explanations that he had and, and sort of proving that it's okay in the end. I'm actually a good guy. I'll step in first. I'll just say I was disappointed. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Ruth and I both like strong female characters, and I expect in Birds of Prey – to have mm-hmm. strong female characters. So I was just, I was let down that they had it be a guy and I didn't find anything immediately endearing about him. I didn't find reasons necessarily to trust him. And it just, uh, it left me disappointed. That's me. It's like, I don't know if I can trust him and he didn't grab me as wanting you know him to stay around long term. So I, I'm not settled with this, so I'm. I don't know what will happen next. We'll see. What were your thoughts? <laughs> oh, I'm. Uh, I'm right there with you guys. You know, that's great. What you brought up there, Darren, about um, him being a guy, and that's something I've been so angry about. Everything else that I, I forgot about his gender. But you know, when I feel like the team is just not the <laughs> team that we want it to be honestly when there's a guy on there and i guess it sounds really bad but you know the birds of prey i think originally was supposed to be um a bunch of strong female heroes or anti-heroes because you know occasionally huntress and and cat well yeah in the beginning you know huntress and catwoman would pop up but whenever a guy popped on it just like took the enjoyment out I i felt like it just I don't know. It fell off. The chemistry fell off. And and I'm specifically thinking about the second volume Gail Simone did before 52 when Hawk and Dove were on there. And I just despised the Hawk character, which is a bummer because, you know, in the past Hawk and Dove were great characters. But I I just feel like I I would love it to be an all-female team and and break the mold and and have this and, and sort of keep it. And some people argue with me because, you know, diversity, you know, shouldn't we have this diverse team and it'd be fine with a man? But I, I think I disagree with them about that. There are so many all male teams everywhere. Mm-hmm. Why not be able to have and protect some female teams? Mm-hmm. So I think I want to see the female team. Absolutely. I agree with you there. I feel a little bit lied to because I feel like building up, it was like, we're going to have this villain and it's like this reverse Oracle And I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be great to have Calculator come back into the fold in this manner? I felt like there were little hints that it could be him. And then we have this guy who's, like, a complete fanboy. And now we have this... And it's not just this fanboy, but 
you know, he's doing bad things, but his explanation makes it seem like actually he wasn't doing bad things. He knew everything was going to be okay in the end. But that, you know, firing a missile at somebody and knowing that they're going to get out of the house alive still makes it bad that you fired a missile at them. (laughs) I know it could have gone wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. I had forgotten about that, Stella. I remember hearing in earlier episodes you mentioning the hints about it possibly being calculator, and I was very intrigued by that, too. I had forgotten about it by the time I read the issue, so I'm glad you reminded me of that because that might have been part of the disappointment, too. It just – there was nothing satisfying about the reveal. And I'm a little disappointed just in the Benson sisters because they're such fans. I went to a panel that they were on with San Diego Comic-Con, and they talked about how when they were younger, like, they were literally reading these as they were coming off the shelves. And and I felt so happy that, oh, they must really know who Birds of Prey is. And so to have, you know, this classic feel back, to a certain extent, I think we're we're getting there. But, you know, the three quote-unquote original members – I thought, why not keep it going and have, like, this villain that, yes, this is, you know, just like Birds of Prey, but then we have this, you know, sort of Joe Schmo off the street. So I was a little bit bummed by mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's uh, – now, you have a connection with uh, Mike Grell. I don't have that connection yet uh, with the Benson sisters, but do you think it's plausible that the writers had a person in mind – but maybe editorial denied it, and, and so that's why we found out an issue later than w- was solicited because we were told that we were supposed to find out uh, in the previous issue, but that didn't happen. I think that's a great theory. I hadn't considered that at all, but there seemed to be such a buildup and then such a letdown when it happened. So that could very well be, Stella, because you'll, you'll have to ask when you get the opportunity because it just really seemed to be – you know, so much hype and then nothing. I like that theory. So that'll be a, a good question for an upcoming convention mm-hmm. if you get a chance. Yeah, and I'm hoping that once this arc is over that I can get an interview with them as well and, and have them on the show. So I did meet them at a, at a well, at San Diego Comic-Con. I, I wasn't able to get an interview, but they're very they're very sweet and kind, and, and I can tell that they have a passion for the characters. This is my only, I think, negative point that, that they've done so far, so I'm hoping that it'll turn around. We'll hope, too. <laughs> Do you think this is going to change the dynamics of uh, the team going forward? Oh, I think definitely. Um, Yeah, I don't think it could not change the dynamic because, I mean, first off, we already have a a difficult uh, connection with the way Hunt has come into the team this time. So I think there's already a little bit of uncertainty there, which is maybe why this extra uncertainty from this other character also seems misplaced. Right. Uh, but at the same time, maybe it'll bring um, Barbara and Dinah really close together because they make a great pair. So maybe we'll get to see them really bond and then hopefully bring the rest of the team together. Right, because right now it's out of balance. So definitely it either they either have to form some stronger connections and make progress over time, or it might not work out. Mm-hmm. Would you be disappointed if uh, Barbara decided to start sitting behind a screen now instead of being in the field with Huntress and Black Canary? Oh, yes, I would be disappointed. I want to see her in action. (laughs) I know she's got all kinds of talents. I love the page where she's thinking Mm -hmm. about herself, um, that on one hand, she can still be Oracle, she's also Barbara Gordon, and she's also Mm -hmm. Batgirl. So she has, you know, a lot of hats that she can wear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. she can take turns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it'll just come down to whether or not uh, we trust this guy, this Gus, and uh, he <laughs> he stays behind the screen. But I, I'm with you, Ruth, that I don't necessarily fully trust him. No. After what, he has to earn my trust. <laughs> I have to spend some more time with him and see what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the pages I really liked were, were, or was, I guess, the conspiracy theories once Oracle disappeared. And they have, like, these different panels of the imaginings of where Oracle was. And there's one, like, laying on a beach. There's one, like, sitting by a TV, I think, and eating French fries. Do you remember this? Oh, yes, yeah, so the one you're talking about. <laughs> that was a good bit of humor. Yeah, it was fun. And and what's interesting is that all of those are like everyone thought that Oracle had to have been a guy, which is both insulting but also encouraging just the fact that, you know, she's as good as any guy could be and probably. Ah, that's a good point there. Well, do you have any other thoughts on this particular issue? Uh, I'll just say overall, I'm really hoping that these issues build into something bigger because I really want to stick with this series. So I hope that there's more development coming so they can, we can really see and invest in these characters going forward. Cause I want to keep reading this book. And I'm also intrigued about what's going to happen in the storyline with Huntress and her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Cause I think Huntress is sort of the one character that's really been developing. And I think she's the one person that, it can go either way with making the team work or not work um, because mm-hmm. Dinah and Barbara already have a pretty solid relationship. I mean, there's been some hiccups in the past, but um, I feel like they're already pretty well formed as a duo. And so Huntress is sort of this outlier of like, is she going to be with them or not, which I think is a, a lot of what this arc has been. Do you feel like this arc uh, has been a little slow in its development? Yes, uh, uh, definitely. And it might be because of the disappointment of, you know, we invested so much time and then we didn't get the payoff that we wanted. But I felt it was a very Mm -hmm. slow burn. Yeah, part of me, I mean, because the subtitle is... uh who is Oracle? I, I <laughs> felt like I kept being pulled off track by all of the, the Finis stuff. And I guess perhaps it's necessary since now we know it's tied with Huntress. But I wish like we could have focused on this like nemesis of Barbara Gordon. But now, of course, it's not a nemesis, but just someone we should trust. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you give this out of 10 birds? Ooh. Oh, I want to say... Around five or six, but I'm heavily pulled down just because of my reaction with Gus. Yeah, I think so. I was going to say five, so we are coming right in at about the same place. I wanted to like it much more, so I might be rating it even lower because it disappointed me, but that's the only thing I can give it, even though I would give the series so far a higher ranking than that, but not this issue. How about you, Stella? I'm right with you, too. I'm right with you <laughs> with a 5 out of 10. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Everyone was trying to, like, <laughs> I know everyone was trying to, like, explain, like, it's okay, it's okay. You know, the explanations turned out good. And I felt like the oddball out, like, no, it's not an okay explanation. So I'm glad that I found two other people who are, you know, of the same. Well, obviously, we're all three right. Yes. Ah, <laughs> oh, There you go. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, Darren, that um, the five doesn't reflect the rest of the series. So mm-hmm. I, I'm hopeful, you know, that, that it'll pick up and maybe we'll get, get rid of Gus quickly and we'll move on. <laughs> yes. 
yeah, who knows what the writers have in store? We'll have to see. I know. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, our final book now is Batgirl number six. I call it Batgirl 58 because it really just connects to Burnside. Beyond Burnside, epilogue. Writer Hope Larson, artist Raphael Albuquerque, and colorist Dave McKegg. Batgirl is hanging outside of, <laughs> outside of a plane with some plant life growing on the plane. Ten hours earlier, Babs is on a plane flying home from Japan and has just finished sending an application to somewhere when there is some major turbulence and a bad smell. Batgirl goes to investigate the cargo hold and discovers a strange plant when Ivy suddenly appears. Uh, poison Ivy, that is. Or Pamela Isley. She explains that the plant was dormant and a fossil, and she is also surprised that it awoke. Batgirl is suddenly wrapped with a vine, and she cuts it. The plant screams to the surprise of both Poison Ivy and Batgirl. A flight attendant comes to see what's going on, and Ivy uses some of her plant magic to control her, and then she tells the flight attendant to spread that same plant magic through the airplane vent... <laughs> vent what is that? Ventilation, the ventilation. system? There we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, ventilation system. Yeah! Um, which knocks everyone out, but apparently not the pilot, so we might have to... <laughs> The plant continues to grow, and the girls come up with a plan which puts Batgirl on the outside of the plane. Back inside, Batgirl tells Ivy that the plant is picking up moisture from the clouds, and then she faints. They both put on oxygen masks and have a conversation about their life choices. When Batgirl realizes that the tanks the plane uses has a chemical that is used in weed killer. Ivy doesn't want to kill it, but Batgirl actually speaks to her better nature and uh, kills it. Or does she? A vine suddenly wraps around Batgirl's neck, but against all odds, Ivy cuts it. Batgirl passes out and wakes up as Barbara Gordon, and she happens to be sitting next to Pamela Isley as they land in Gotham. They both say that they had a crazy dream. Inside the airport, Babs finds out she got the job, apparently in 10 hours, and meets Frankie. Meanwhile, E. Cobblepot is welcomed back from Switzerland and goes to Burnside. Next, an all-new Burnside in Son of Penguin, Part 1. <laughs> so, yeah, um, maybe a, a quick question to get out of the way is, does the ventilation system in a plane not affect the pilot, uh, the cockpit? <laughs> <laughs> I wondered about that. I told myself because comics that it had to have been sealed off somehow and have their own air supply, but they didn't address that. Uh, Okay, so my first question is um, actually why she, when when all of this stuff is going down, why doesn't she investigate as Barbara Gordon? Why does she have to put on her suit in order to investigate? Hmm. Well, we have to justify the title on the front of the cover. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She does have a great costume, so it would have been a shame not to see it in this issue. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I guess there are just some times that I feel like, you know, especially in the Bronze Age, there were times where she was investigating as Barbara Gordon. And only if it got, you know, really hairy or she needed to do something Mm. at night, she would turn into Batgirl. And I feel like... 
it gets it's easy if you're maybe you know in Gotham and you know Barbara Gordon and, and Batgirl are running around the same city. But when Barbara Gordon and Batgirl are running around in a plane with you know maybe I don't know how many people are on a plane for like you know across um, or transatlantic or transpacific flight, but you know th- then it gets a little iffy of like are people going to notice that Barbara Gordon's seat is empty and and Batgirl has appeared? But you know the people are gassed out, so maybe we can explain that. But certainly we know that Pamela Isley uh, put her back in her regular clothes and in her seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's a big question as well. Does then Ivy knows who Barbara Gordon is? She must, yes. And someone had the idea that this whole issue was a dream, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. My only problem with that is at the very end, you see the actual engine is like smoking, which proves that there was some sort of issue with the plane uh, and the plant thing. Do you think this whole issue could have been a dream and she was just sleeping for 10 hours trans-Pacific, this flight? Oh, I took it as it really happened. Me too. That's how I interpreted it. Yeah. I don't think I'd take it as a dream either because they even threw in that specific panel where they show a portion of the plant get cut away and fall from the plane to the Mm -hmm. ground. Mm -hmm. So we know that that plant's coming back sometime in the future. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very true. Yep. And the fact that she sent out her applications and she got a job. So if it were a dream, like she wouldn't have a job when she got to the airport. Mm. So, but that's just, I just feel like it's, if it's true that Ivy now knows that Barbara Gordon or this redheaded, maybe she doesn't even know who Barbara Gordon is, this redheaded person, I feel like it's glossed over. Like it's just they wake up and then they go on a merry way. But it seems like a big deal to me anyways to have that sort of thing happen. I'm glad you're saying that, Stella, because Ruth and I read it on subsequent days. I had read it the day before and I was waiting for Ruth to read it because – I wanted her to explain that part to me because it just did not make any sense. And I'd gone back and tried to figure it out and couldn't. And I was just hoping that she would be able to tell me what I missed. And unfortunately, I didn't miss anything. And it was a bit mysterious, too, about what really happened to the plant in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't quite know what what Poison Ivy did. You don't see signs of it on the plane any longer. Mm -hmm. And I just really wonder what happened with that. It could be lying dormant in the in the uh, the body of the plane, or for all we know. Mm-hmm. Right. What have you thought of the this new writer Hope Larson and the the travels of Barbara Gordon thus far? So this basically the rebirth Batgirl. Uh, that's a great question. I I probably give it a little bit of an extra bonus because, again, so much of the story takes place in Asia, which we are very interested in Japanese culture. Of course, they go uh, other parts in Asia as well, but it's really interesting to us, that culture, and I I enjoyed it, but the series has been a little weaker than I wanted it to be, especially the storyline with the cram school students Mm. just seemed... Very weak to me. I loved the fruit bat lady. I wanted uh, more of her, but the the story with the cram school students just seemed a little weak. It wasn't as strong as I wanted, and it certainly got stretched out for a lot of issues. I didn't really care a whole lot for Kai, uh, but I I didn't dislike him, but I didn't care a whole lot for him. So I actually liked the fact that this issue as a 
standalone issue was sort of fun and lighthearted. It has some flaws, but I like the lighthearted, fun, mm-hmm. one-and-done nature of it. I thought it breathed a little bit of fresh air into the series, uh, and not mean pun of fresh air since we were just talking about ventilation shifts. <laughs> Well, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Sutherland, I feel like we're going to be good friends because I just agree with you on all counts on that. I didn't care for Kai either. Um, and it just, it's it's been rocky for me. I've been very critical of this particular run and, and I feel like um, the writer doesn't really know who Barbara Gordon is. Um, I've seen preview art for the next issue and I'm v- very concerned. But I, I actually really liked this issue. Mm. I mean, despite there being some weird things like glossing over the fact that Ivy has just undressed and unmasked uh, Barbara Gordon, or, well, Batgirl, and, <laughs> and, and other things, I, I just felt like it was a fun little situation. Um, of course, it takes place, like, literally in a vacuum, uh, which maybe that's that's why, and it's just a, a one-and-done, but I just felt like it was something you'd see a classic comic, you know, just with Batgirl and, and Poison Ivy. I enjoyed their interactions. Ivy, I think, is more of a positive, has more positive characteristics than she normally does, but it was fun to see these two, and it reminds me of, you know, Gotham Girls or, you know, the DC Superhero Girls also, just like when these two interact, or uh, the Batman, which was in the, I guess, 2005 or so, and their origin stories when they were younger they actually were best friends so I, I like to see these two interact I thought that was pretty fun I do have an issue though you know with Barbara Gordon's character it, it seems like she leaves lots of things unfinished and I would almost call her a flake uh, because you know school she she mm. didn't <laughs> fully finish school um, she left her company and now she's going to have a new job or whatever is happening with this application so mm-hmm. it just seems like uh, you know, the purpose of this new storyline was for her to discover herself, and it just seems like, well, number one, I felt like that was useless, but number two, I feel like that it hasn't even happened, like she's still trying to figure out what she needs to do. Yeah, actually, that part felt like an episode of a CW show to me, because <laughs> they seem to never need to finish college at the CW to get wonderful jobs. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll add, I was especially excited to see Poison Ivy and her guest appearance in this particular issue was fun mm-hmm. because I think she's a very interesting character and I did like to see the two of them team up to try to solve the problem, which felt very scary, mm-hmm. although, you know, we're talking about a giant plant that's screaming and <laughs> you have to use your imagination, but thinking of being up in the plane, something's going wrong, you have the risk of mm-hmm. uh, the plane crashing, so I think it built up some great tension of how this was an emergency situation that they needed to cooperate on and figure out how to solve it together. So I really liked seeing the two of them team up in this particular issue. She's a, I think she's becoming a a personal favorite for mine. For some heroes, it's very easy to pick out like favorite villains and Batman's been sort of, I've been trying to figure it out, but I think Poison Ivy has slowly started to to step up uh, and become one of my favorites. They were on uh, the Birds of Prey New 52 team together. Uh, I don't know if you read that, but do you think that the history, like, do you think they remember the history between the two of them? Or do you think we should just feel like there's been a, there's been a cut and this is new and that sort of continuity, like she was never on that team? Oh, that's interesting to speculate. Like, I think, I guess whatever I want to imagine could be my interpretation 
covet. Uh, we did read uh, both Batgirl and Birds of Prey in the New okay. 52 for a long time. We mm. uh, we didn't finish them, but we got probably into issue 30-something of both of them. And I got the feeling from this that they don't have that connection. So I was sort of thinking this is still continuing from the latter part of the New 52 Batgirl run, sort of like the, uh, but not those earlier ones, was my take. What about you? It seems like it, that it's not there. The history's not there. I think if it were, um, their interactions would have been perhaps slightly different, uh, maybe a little more antagonistic. Uh, so I think this is probably a slate clean. Mm-hmm. Yes. I hope we get more opportunities to see the two of them together so we can learn more. Absolutely. I almost want a Gotham Girls, like a reimagined, re-envisioned comic to come back. That would be fabulous. I don't know who we can, uh, we should try to find someone to <laughs> be put in charge of this. <laughs> these ideas out there. <laughs> That's right. We need to find a way to make our special requests. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're pretty close. You've got, apparently, you've got some friends with the comic creators, so you could potentially edge your way in there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are your final thoughts on this issue and then a grade out of 10 bats? Oh, let me say, actually, I want to say nine. I just enjoyed it. I'm going to give it a nine because I did like the, you know, getting a complete story, one episode, I was concerned about everybody's safety, so it engaged me, and I enjoyed the two main characters in the story. So let me go with a nine. Oh, that's a really high rating, but I really like this issue. I thought it was fun. Uh, I liked both of the characters. I thought they worked well together. I thought the uh, adventure action part of the story was entertaining. So I really liked it. It has some flaws. It has a couple of big holes, but overall, I really liked it, too. I think I'll give it an eight. And I'm going to agree with Ruth and also give it a nine. I felt like it was a breath of fresh air. I think, so, Darren, you made that joke as well. It was a breath of fresh air after the uh, <laughs> the Asia storyline. And um, I, I just really enjoyed it. And Ivy was fun. But I agree that, you know, some big plot questions, especially just uh, sort of glossing over the fact that suddenly Barbara and Pamela are next to each other and in their their civvies and and nothing said. But otherwise, I I thought that it was good. The uh, next storyline actually uh, starts shipping her, well, with this E. Cobblepot guy who actually is the son of... um, Oswald Cobblepot. <laughs> Speaking of Penguin, uh, <laughs> apparently she's going. There's going to be a romance between these two. We only see him for a couple pages. In these two pages, uh, do you feel like this is going to be a good romance? It's interesting. The thing that I focused on the most is how much the son of Penguin looks like the Penguin in the Gotham TV series, <laughs> with just oh. different color hair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely resemblance, but I would be hesitant about the longevity of their relationship. Uh, he's just so, you know, comes off to me as rude to his new interns who is so, you know, eager to help and, you know, excited about being able to chauffeur him to Burnside and you know, he quickly dismisses him for trying to make small talk. 
Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it, but I've not really looked forward to any of her romances. I I just don't think that they've been done well, especially with, well, the Kai, I think, was an issue. Uh, But I'm a big uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon shipper. Like, they're my one true pair. So anything other than that is just Mm -hmm. second best or not at all. (laughs) But, yeah, I'm not sure about this one here. They go together like Green Arrow and Black Canary. See? Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. (laughs) Okay. Well, over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Uh, That's like finding an extra compartment in your utility belt for a lockpick or a spare key. Thank you very much, Stella, and Happy New Year to you and to all our listeners. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'll review Batman 66 meets Steed and Mrs. Peel, number six, the concluding issue of this limited series. Issue number six was cover dated February 2017 and is a DC Comics Boom Studios crossover with their characters based on the British TV series, The Avengers. The cover art was provided by Michael and Laurel Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. Our penultimate chapter is entitled A Robotic Revelation and was written by Ian Edgington and are provided by Michael Dow Smith. When we last left our heroes, four female students from Lord Fogg's school, who in reality are cybernauts, were closing in on them. Robin and Mrs. Peel managed to momentarily fend them off while Steed activates a device, which partially lowers the floor to the level below, seemingly providing them an escape. However, our heroes find that five original-looking cybernauts are on the lower level with them. Through a speaker, Michaela Goff informs our heroes that her motives for her actions were revenge against Steed and Mrs. Peel for the fate of her father, and that if her cybernauts can do away with Britain's top two secret agents, as well as Batman and Robin, she can name her price when selling them to the underworld. The four female cybernauts from the level above make their way down and join the other cybernauts to surround our heroes. The final chapter, A Startling Explanation. Batman takes a bat laser from his utility belt and activates the overhead sprinkler system, which shorts out a handful of cybernauts. When the other cybernauts close in, Steed asks Michaela if this is how her father had intended for the cybernauts to be used, and if their actions would tarnish his legacy. With that, Michaela deactivates the remaining cybernauts. She then meets with the heroes and shows them the remnants of her father. Electronic data banks containing his brain computerized, and pulls back a curtain to reveal his disembodied head atop a console with a white star diamond on top of his head as a makeshift crown. After Michaela interprets a comment by Steed as an insult, she starts to choke him. Emma then kicks Michaela and literally knocks off her face, revealing that she herself is a cybernaut. Unable to deal with the shock, Michaela goes berserk and sticks her hand into the live circuits and shorts herself out. In the story's epilogue, as our heroes walk to a room, Steed explains that it was discovered that Michaela was an advanced prototype cybernaut, and once activated, formed a patchwork past and personality for herself. Emma states that she will be repaired just before the group of them are presented and to be honored and thanked by Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. And of course, her back is to the reader and her face not revealed. The end. (laughs) Okay, well, we made it to the finish line, and not without yet another Cybernaut confrontation cliffhanger, but to a decent, okay, passable conclusion. I did like the surprise that Michaela Goff was a Cybernaut, a twist I should have seen coming. And this was probably, for me, the best issue of the series, and I am not saying that because it's finally over. 
while there was a nice twist ending, I did have a few quibbles with the issue. At one point, Robin calls Mrs. Peel Emma, which I thought came off as a little too familiar. I don't recall Steed ever calling Mrs. Peel Emma on the Avengers TV series. And that was a bit strange for me to see another male character address her in that way. To be fair, I don't recall if Emma permitted Robin to drop the formality when they initially met. Also, once again, we were subjected to a, another Cybernaut cliffhanger. I don't think I can add any more to my sadness and disgust to the story element being used again than what I previously expressed on my past reviews. I don't know if Edgington had any side bet going or if he was trying to set some sort of record by using the same cliffhanger in a six-issue limited series span. Uh, beyond that, I thought the characterizations were good and the villain's motivation plausible for a story involving our principal characters. The issue did not make me like or hate the artwork or colors any more or less than what we were previously subjected to. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this two and a half out of five. I'll concur and give this the equivalent of five out of ten bats. Overall, though, as I'd rate this series, as much as I love the characters and I'm a fan of both respective TV series, it pains me to say I would not recommend this to anyone seeking out the trade hardcover or paperback edition of the story. I'll grant you it can be a bit hard to convey the wit and charm of the Avengers into a comic book. After all, just how can you convey the chemistry and charisma that Patrick Minnie and Diana Rigg had together? I do think this comic book series tried, and I did like the moments when the two had exchanges, especially in their subtle ways of requesting aid during a fight. Those were nice touches, but there were not enough of these moments. The revelation that Emma Peel knows Batman's secret identity didn't later come into play in the story, and I wonder if it was really necessary. Now, at the risk of sounding contradictory, I am glad we had the pairing of these two properties, but I thought it just didn't live up to its potential. I wanted a bit more wit, uh, some character interaction, some subtle humor, and most of all, some variances in the peril situations and cliffhangers. Okay, now imagine if you will, you're in the year 1998, and you're going to a summer movie featuring the acting talents of Sean Connery, Ray Fiennes, Uma Thurman, and it features Eddie Izzard. Just how bad could your outing be? Well, if you went to the big screen adaptation of The Avengers, you may likely say that your outing could have been better. Uh, the film would later go on to an Arazio Award in the category of Worst Remake or Sequel. It also has the distinction of being on a Wikipedia list of one of the worst films ever made, and it currently holds a score of 5% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was one of those souls that did go to this movie the opening weekend, and the theater chums I went with did not like this movie. Having seen it, though, within the past year, my opinion didn't change. Yes, it's bad, but I don't think it was worth all the hate it got. Now, I can't recall the time precisely when this came out, but I think this came out at a time where there were a lot of movie remakes of TV shows, and critics and moviegoers may have been getting a little bit tired of that. So this had a potential strike uh, going in right there. Now, to me... Some of the elements of the script, some, I said some, not all, had the elements of the TV series. And I was really taken by some of the locales that were used. Now, while I respect all the actors involved, I dare say the film was miscast and the chemistry between the leads seemed forced. 
Yes, there were some problems with the acting. Yes, there were some problems with the direction. As a fan of the show, though, this film has always been an intriguing examination as to the whys and hows of it not working. I think there was more to it than simply saying this came out to young audiences who had no idea who the characters were and what the TV show was, and to an older generation that knew the characters but had no desire to see them on film. Ultimately, I think my own biases come into play. I like these characters at the core. So, how can I totally hate it? Yeah, it's not a ba- it's a bad movie, but not that bad. And I think there are worse interpretations of TV and comic book characters on film. Of course, your opinions may vary. Before I go, I'd like to give a shout out to Jerry Green and to Dustin of the TBU website and podcast. Jerry does some excellent written reviews on the TBU website. And I've been very fortunate to have been tapped to join Jerry as a co-host on the Bat Books for Beginners podcast. Jerry and I have already recorded a couple of the podcasts that have yet to have been released at the time of my recording of this segment, but I can say we've had a blast recording this particular show, and I hope you enjoy two passionate Batman guys who revel in discussing some past Batman stories. I hope you like what we're doing, and you look for us when our episodes come out. I'd like to thank Dustin for the honor and to Jerry for all he brings to the table. I'm indebted to you both. Listeners, please feel free to leave any comments for myself or for the podcast on the TBU website. And please leave us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website and to the podcast, you can make a donation on Patreon by following the link on the Batman Universe website homepage. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Twitter and Instagram to be forthcoming. Thank you for your support. What wonderful heroine will Batman 66 be paired with next time? What time frame will our next Batman 66 story open in? What rascally Bat-villain from Batman's Rogues Gallery will now be introduced in Batman 66 continuity? The answers to these body, batty, baritone, baffling, bewildering, baited, barehanded, barbaric bemoans to be answered next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella sight. Okay, well, this is the sad part of the episode where now we must depart from uh, Darren and Ruth. But before that happens, I would love for you to tell listeners how we can, or how they can, or we, uh, support you and, and where can we find you. Well, thank you so much, Stella. We do three different podcasts. Each podcast is focused on one of our three favorite comic creators. And the first I'll mention is Trekker Talk, which actually doesn't have anything to do with Star Trek. It focuses on the comic book called Trekker, which is written and illustrated by Ron Randall. And that's a sci-fi series about a female bounty hunter in the 23rd century. And our show, we cover the series from the very beginning when it was published in 1987 up to the current weekly webcomic. And then, of course, we've talked a lot about Mike Grell this episode, and that's our second podcast is Warlord Worlds. And in that, we cover the creations of Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, and his run on Green Arrow. And then we throw in occasionally other titles that he's worked on. So like right now, we're covering the Legion of Superheroes. And finally, Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series, Xenozoic Tales, by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And in that, we cover one issue in each episode. And we, when we catch up, we plan to talk about his other works, 
including the excellent novella he did called Storms at Sea. And we've had the wonderful opportunity to interview all three of them for our shows. There's a Ron Randall interview on Trekker Talk. There's a Mike Grill interview on Warlord Worlds. And we just recorded an interview with Mark Schultz. That'll be on our February episode of Xenozoic Xenophiles. And all of those podcasts are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And we have pages for each of them on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And we even have a YouTube channel where you can find all of them. What's the name of that YouTube uh, channel, Ruth? Rad Adventures. You get it? Ruth and Darren? Rad. <laughs> <laughs> we had fun with that one. So that's how, how people can find us. Really, really appreciated being on the show with you. Absolutely. It was a pleasure for me. I think, you know, because we have mutual friends and I think we probably listen to some of the same shows, I had first heard of your Xenozoic Xenophiles because I was listening to Who's Who and Rob Kelly, I think he was tripping up on it and it was it was kind of a classic <laughs> moment. But I think it was probably good publicity for you because people would probably be like, oh, what is this show? And then probably have listened to it. <laughs> I remember hearing him do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think he probably practiced afterwards because he's got it down now. (laughs) Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate all the knowledge you brought to uh, Green Arrow, and I also very much appreciate you agreeing with me on many of the issues that I consistently have but other people seem to be okay with. Well, thank you so much, Stella, for inviting us on your show. We love your show. It's so much fun, and uh, it's great to actually get a chance to be on your show. And one of these days, days, hopefully, we'll run into each other at a convention. Oh, that would be great. Really enjoyed spending time with you, Stella. This was fun. Next up is the literature recommendation. Uh, I have several, so bear with me. Uh, First up is Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. In an unnamed South American country, a world-renowned soprano sings at a birthday party in honor of a visiting Japanese industrial titan. His hosts hope that Mr. Hosokawa can be persuaded to build a factory in their third world backwater. Alas, in the opening sequence, just as the accompanist kisses a soprano, a ragtag band of 18 terrorists enters the vice presidential mansion through the air conditioning ducts. Their quarry is the president, who has unfortunately stayed home to watch a favorite soap opera. And thus, from the beginning, things go awry. Among the hostages are not only Hosokawa and Roxanne Koss, the American soprano, but an assortment of Russian, Italian, and French diplomatic types. Ruben Iglesias, the diminutive and gracious vice president, quickly gets sideways at the kidnappers who have no interest in him whatsoever. Meanwhile, a Swiss Red Cross negotiator named Joaquin Messner is roped into service while vacationing. He comes and goes wrangling over terms and demands, and the days stretch into weeks, the weeks into months. Uh, This was a great read. I was shocked once, I mean, once a terrorist thing happened, I was like, oh, this is not going to turn out well. And obviously, but after, you know, then you start to realize, oh, wait, this is going to be the whole novel. They're going to stay right here. So it's very interesting. I did have a problem with the ending. However, if you read it, um, a couple crucial people died and then two people who were not together all of a sudden get together at the very end to get married. I didn't really like it. You know, even though I like shipping, the shipping didn't make sense. It didn't seem like those two would get together because they loved other people. The people who got killed, in fact. So it was, was, I don't know. It was a very engaging novel. Then uh, Uncharted, The Fourth Labyrinth by Christopher Golden. And I got this one that came out in 2011, which I think was around Uncharted 2 came out. And I started it. 
And then whatever happened, maybe life got in the way and I didn't finish it. And then I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start over and come back uh, and finish it. And I did. And I was glad I did. Uh, so in the ancient world, there was a myth about a king, a treasure, and a hellish labyrinth. Now the doors to that hell are open once again. Nathan Drake, treasure hunter and risk taker, has been called to New York City by the man who taught him everything about the antiquities acquisition business. Victor Sullivan needs Drake's help. Sully's old friend, a world-famous archaeologist, has just been found murdered in Manhattan. Dodging assassins, Drake, Sully, and the dead man's daughter, uh, Jada, race from New York to underground excavations in Egypt and Greece. Their goal? To unravel an ancient myth of alchemy, look for three long-lost labyrinths, and find the astonishing discovery that got Jada's father killed. It appears that a fourth labyrinth was built in another land and another culture, and within it lies a key to unmatched wealth and power. An army of terrifying lost warriors guards this underground maze, so does a monster, and what lies beyond, if Drake can live long enough to reach it, is both a treasure and a poison, a paradise and a hell. Welcome to the fourth labyrinth. Well, if you're fans of the game, you're not going to find at least Elena, who's, you know, one of my favorite characters, because uh, I think you have to have Nathan as your favorite character, but Elena's like really, I mean, she's my favorite character, but maybe she's second. I don't know. But anyway, so you're not going to find that. This is sort of all before uh, the game start, but you really have the feel of the game. Like you could see this being turned into a game. Uh, the author really has the voice of Drake and, and Sully down in there camaraderie and things like that so uh and it was an engaging adventure story so it was pretty cool then thanks to donovan morgan grant um i got secret hero society study hall of justice by Derek friedolfs and dustin nguyen aspiring young detective bruce wayne has been recruited for ducard academy and soon realizes that something fishy is going on his fellow classmates are a bunch of clowns and bullies who have no desire to better their formal education they are more interested in petty crimes and world domination Luckily, Bruce finds two classmates who similarly are not fitting in at the academy. Clark is a strange boy from a farm in Smallville. Diana Prince comes from a small exotic island on the other side of the world. If the three of them can work together, they might be able to figure out who is really running Ducard Academy and why the curriculum is so bizarre. They just have to watch out for the school's vigilante central computer system slash librarian a.k.a. Brainiac, and the ninjas who always seem to be in the shadows. Oh, I love this. It was so cute and amazing. Probably this isn't, you know, <laughs> I'm not the focus audience, but that's okay because I think it was meant for me. It's just amazing how they all get together and um, work together. They all have, even though they're kids, the same personalities. Uh, at one point, Bruce is writing like Batman-like uh, shopping list down for Alfred to get and Alfred writes back on this I'm not getting you any of this it's funny how they play together and uh, just the mysteries and how Clark, Diane and Bruce work together it's a great 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 thing you should get it for your kid but secretly for yourself so they can kind of be your beard uh, <laughs> there you go continue with the comics theme uh, Batman Ego and Other Tales by Darwin Cook Ego is a psychologically loaded tale in which Bruce Wayne confronts his innermost fears in the form of a grotesque embodiment of his costume alter ego. Besides Ego and a handful of shorter stories featuring the Caped Crusader, this collection includes the Catwoman graphic novel Selena's Big Score, in which that villainous attempts the final heist before her reinvention as a vigilante defending the downtrodden. Another great tale, Darwin Cook's amazing. He, of course, worked on uh, New Frontier. I've been told about Ego that I needed to read it, and I finally did, and I wasn't disappointed. 
and Trinity by Matt Wagner. And is of course, the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Trinity. When Batman's enemy, Ra's al Ghul, enlists the help of the botched Superman clone Bizarro and a rogue Amazon for his global terrorist organization, the Caped Crusader re- recruits reinforcements of his own, Superman and new ambassador from Themyscira, Wonder Woman. As the three champions join forces to defend Earth against an oncoming apocalypse, a legendary alliance is born. This was great. I love Matt Wagner's writing, and it's great also that he's a writer and an artist. So he really, I think, you know, artists are interpreting words, right? But if you are the writer, then you can certainly see what you want better than um, other people could. And I think this is a great take on their first meeting of, of these three, the well, the big three. Do have to shout out to Tom Penneris for letting me borrow over Christmas break uh, about two years of the new Teen Titans. It was pre-Terra, where you like first see her, the actual Terra and Judas Contract, and then post-Terra. Learned a lot, got to see Nightwing's uh, first introduction, got to, I guess, get why well, got to know Starfire a little bit more, take it or leave it. Uh, but it was great. I learned a lot. I, I knew, of course, that Terra betrayed the team, but I didn't know that Terra died, and that was spoiled in the the addition of the trade that I got because I think Marv Wolfman in his intro talked about that. So that was a little sad that I was spoiled, but uh, it was great, and I'm very appreciative. He had broadened my horizon. And also, shout out to Chris Carnes for sending me uh, the Superman films. I've only watched two right now, and he also sent me two romance comics, which I blame Tom Penneries for this because I think he made Chris uh, troll me, uh, as well as some Asriel comics, uh, which most likely were spurred on by my conversation with Shag. So certainly Chris is like the super fan of uh, 2016 or 2017 because I think all that was in the bloopers where Shag was confronting me about my Asriel reading, and I was saying, I don't need to read that, and then I didn't have them either, and then I get them in the mail. So thank you to that. Uh, and I think Chris also probably got fed up by the fact that um, I kept telling people I had never seen the Superman film. So now I have seen the first two Superman films. Uh, I enjoy them because I'm sure people are going to ask, did I like them, did I not? I enjoy them. I think, you know, watching even just the first two, even just the first one, I don't know if anyone's really captured Clark Kent as well as Christopher Reeve has. And just the ability. I mean, there's that one scene where... He's in Lois's presence and, uh, you know, as Clark. And then she leaves and he, like, straightens up and takes off his glasses or something. And you're like, there's a physical change. And it almost reminds me of, oh, man, who's the actor that played? It was an old Jekyll and Hyde film. I can't remember. Uh, was it Lon Chaney Sr., maybe? Just, like... You know, without the use of makeup, potentially, you know, he was able to change from Jekyll to Hyde. So just an awesome portrayal, I think. I, yeah, I need to see the theatrical release because I had the Donner cut of Superman 2. I was a little concerned with pacing, but maybe it's just me and maybe it's also me experiencing this after I've experienced, like, really, really quick action films of today. Uh, so that would kind of be my uh, complaint that it's a little a little slow. But also, I mean, I think about like Star Trek being slow because it literally takes three minutes for Kirk to get to his ship because um, you see, you know, there's like this music and he's like moving across. But anyways, thank you, Chris, uh, for sending me all those things. I'm so appreciative. Well, send any questions or comments to BackRollTheOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BackRollTheOracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support TBU by subscribing to Patreon.
Once again, thanks to Maya High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And thanks also to Darren and Ruth Sutherland from Warlord Worlds for coming on and talking some Green Arrow with me. So until next time, don't get caught out in the cold. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? But the motorcycles were just a distraction while Connor and Jet sneak into the hangar where they find a F-16 fighter with American markings. You're reading. You've got your page numbers all out. Oh, oh, my goodness. You're reading my summary. Sorry about that, Stella. Ruth uh, got her pages all mixed up. <laughs> That's okay. I'm actually, I think it's very cute that you guys, like, it's a married couple. I think it's amazing that you guys are married and you have, you know, your podcast and you're, like, in the same room. That's, like, the ideal that probably all podcasters <laughs> should look for. So please no apologies. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I appreciate it. <laughs> It's it's funny. Uh, we do love doing the show together, and uh, it wouldn't be nearly as much fun otherwise. I wouldn't uh, be willing to devote this much time unless I got to devote it with her. <laughs> if, <laughs> if she could you. find her pages. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I wondered why that sounded familiar, but I had uh, jumbled up my pages. They were loose <laughs> instead of instead of clipped together. Instead of stapled together, like I offered yes. to do for her. Yes. 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 <laughs> Uh, so let's see where am I picking up hopefully everybody can figure out what happened in the middle (laughs) (laughs) well with the magic of editing I think it'll all come together fine so but no promises that it won't uh, not end up on the, you know, the bloopers or anything. So if you ask Shag, I keep it. Yeah, that's, I can understand uh, that. I, I can hear it in the outtakes at the end of your show now. <laughs> yes. And guess what? I'm actually going to Heroes Con. <gasps> Yay. Uh, fabulous. That's great. Well, we'll definitely get to see you there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, Shag will be there, too. Yeah, well, yeah, we've met him before. <laughs> <laughs> oh.